Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome this morning. Thanks for being here, being part of our Sunday service, whether you're here in person, as many of you are, or whether you're checking us out online. We are so glad you would decide to spend this time with us. If you are new or visiting, we want to extend a special welcome to you. Uh, if you are new, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And you've joined us today as we're in the midst of our Christmas series, a series on Advent, where we are just talking through some of the hope that we have looking forward to, that Christmas is a reminder of the hope we have in the return of Jesus and all that God will do when that occurs. And so we want to continue in that vein this morning. And the title of the message today is The Hope of Rescue. Well, some of you may be old enough that are here today to remember the story of baby Jessica. Uh, On October 14th, 1987, in Midland, Texas, 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell into the shaft of a well that was eight inches in diameter, and her body became tightly lodged in that shaft 22 feet below ground. And for the next 58 hours, the story of the attempts to rescue her would literally captivate the hope of this nation and the world. I mean, the the cable news TVs ran the story 24-7 coverage. Uh, TVs were left on and tuned all over the country. It was the topic of conversation on people's jobs and everywhere. And it literally captivated this nation for that period of time. And first responders, they tried everything imaginable to get her out with no success. They called in oil drillers and construction specialists and mining engineers and every other possible expert to help with her rescue. It is a picture we have of the, some of the rescue efforts that were going on during that time at that well shaft. But the well shaft was surrounded by rock that was harder than granite and nothing seemed to offer hope to rescue her as her body was tightly wedged in that shaft and would not budge. And so for 45 long hours, they could not find a way to rescue baby Jessica. And hope was beginning to fade. So eventually, they tried digging a parallel tunnel near the well and used water jet technology to cut through the rock to reach the well shaft. And a paramedic volunteered to squeeze down that shaft and made his way to where she was stuck and eventually freed her. And people literally all over the world cheered with joy when her body was handed up from the shaft and she was carried to a waiting ambulance alive. And the picture of that rescue, we have a picture, won a Pulitzer Prize that year. And if you were following these events at the time, it would be hard to imagine a rescue that was more powerful and precious to so many than the story of baby Jessica. But I would submit that there is one. 
And it involves another little baby, but this time the baby will not be the one being rescued. This time he will be the rescuer. And this rescue doesn't begin with worldwide acclaim and attention like baby Jessica's did. It begins in a very different way. And you're familiar with the story, but let's take a few moments just to review the beginning of that rescue. Matthew 1, 18 through 21 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And continuing in Luke 2, 1 through 7, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Familiar verses to most of us. And in these verses, we have the story of Jesus' entry into this world on that first Christmas day. Here we have the Son of God himself coming into the world in really the most humble of ways. No majesty or fanfare surrounding his birth. And not only was he born to the poor people as his parents, but God didn't even leave a room for him at the inn so he could be born in a bed. But he was born in a stable and laid in an animal's feeding trough for a crib. And the only announcement of his birth is made by the angels to a group of shepherds tending their flocks at night, not exactly the movers and shakers of Jewish society. And nobody else really seemed to know or care. I mean, what an unusual way for the Son of God himself to come on the scene as a helpless vulnerable infant in the humblest of circumstances. But that's exactly the way this rescue, this first Christmas, begins. So let me ask you, how many of you have ever started a good book or a novel, but then turned to the last page or chapter and read the ending before you finish the book? Come on, be honest. How many? Yeah, I know you're out there. If you haven't done that, maybe a little lesson on legalism might be a good idea. But 
But whether you would do that or not, it is true that sometimes the real significance of some of the things in the beginning of a story can't really be seen or appreciated until you get to the end. And I think that's the way it is with this Christmas rescue. And perhaps our appreciation, if you will, for the importance of this little baby, this Savior who was born on that first Christmas day, might be stimulated if we can get a clear picture of what he came to rescue or save us from. And so today, I want to take us to the end of the story. Let's turn to the end of the book, the last chapter, if you will, and see how this Christmas story ends. And so I want to look today at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And so if you want to pull out your Bible app or you can follow along with the slides on the screen. Before we look at this, let's take a moment and ask for God's help. Lord, as we come to you this morning, Lord, we, we come in need of your grace. Lord, I know I do. Lord, help me to be able to speak your word and what you want to say clearly and concisely. Lord, help all of us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit to see and understand the glory of what your Son has rescued us from. Lord, let it increase our joy and our appreciation and our gratefulness to you. So, Lord, fill us now. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit that you might be glorified and your people might be blessed, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we come to Revelation chapter 20, really, when in this Advent series, all, all the promises of Advent come to fruition in the last chapters of Revelation. And when Jesus returns and God fulfills all these certain promises he's given us about his return, and one of those events is in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. So let's read through this passage together and then we'll unpack it a little bit. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, He was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is a passage that we don't want to read through too quickly and really miss the power and the impact of these verses. So let's dig into this a little bit. And the first thing we want to see in this passage is the great white throne. Verse 11 begins, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
This throne is the throne of the great king of all the universe as he prepares to call to account every human being who ever lived. And so who is it that's seated on this throne? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 17 as he speaks to the people in Athens, he says this in verses 30 through 31. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The day that Paul speaks of in these verses is the day being described in Revelations chapter 20. And he says the one who sits on that throne is a man appointed by God. And you know who he is because God raised him from the dead. Jesus himself said it this way in John 5, 22. He said, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. See, this is Jesus Christ. That same little baby born on Christmas Day that was laid in a feeding trough because there was no room for him in the end. But unlike that first Christmas day where he came into this world in the most unassuming and humble of circumstances, in this moment, we see him in all of his awesome glory and majesty. And the second half of this verse is almost beyond our comprehension to even imagine. Let's look at verse 11 again. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. See, this is Jesus Christ revealed in the awesome fullness of his power and majesty and holiness on his throne. And his presence is so awesome and holy, the very creation itself, corrupted and stained by sin, cannot bear to be in his presence. And the universe itself flees from his presence and is consumed by fire in a moment of time. And there is no place it can hide from the holiness of his presence. I mean, think of it, not not just the entire earth, but the stars and the planets fleeing from his presence and being consumed in the fire of his holiness. I mean, if you've been tracking with the news these last few months. You may have be aware of the, the really huge wildfires that have been devastating the West in California. And these wildfires, they destroy thousands of acres and they are almost impossible to contain and they consume everything in their path. And as devastating and awesome as those fires are, they they are like a candle to the sun compared to this situation. And this is not just a normal fire. This is a unique fire that is a fire of God's holiness. It's a fire that consumes everything that is impure, corrupt, or stained by sin and the curse in this creation. And it just burns through it and exposes it for what it is. I mean, this is like a nuclear bomb being dropped on the universe and 
fire just sweeps out and consumes everything that is tainted and cursed and affected by the curse and sin. Peter describes it this way in 2 Peter 3.10. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I mean, there is... Nothing we can imagine that can compare with that moment. I mean, think of the worst tornado, the greatest earthquake, an asteroid colliding with the earth, whatever you want, and multiply it by a million times, and it still can't capture the power and awesomeness of that moment. What a contrast between the picture of Jesus we see here And that little baby born in a stable in Bethlehem. No longer veiling his majesty and becoming a human being, we see Jesus revealed in the fullness of his glory and Godhead. And in that moment, there will be no doubt or question that he is both Lord and God. Second thing we want to look at in this passage is the two books. Let's look at two, verses 12 and 13. It says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to to what they had done. He speaks, and the dead throughout all history are instantly resurrected and brought to stand before him. The greatest figures in human history as well as the most insignificant, there will be no difference in that moment. Jesus described it this way in John 5, 28 and 29. It says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, it's not just Christians who get new eternal bodies. The only question is where those bodies are going to spend eternity. And then in verse 12, it says, and books were opened. Several hundred years before Jesus came on that first Christmas day, Daniel describes this moment in Daniel 7.10. He said this, he said, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And there are two sets of books in these verses. The first set of books is the book of deeds. And these books contain the record of every human act, word, or thought that has moral consequence. Each human being will be judged according to the things that are written in this book book of deeds, and it will include not only our acts, 
But every word that was spoken and the motives and reasons for why those things were done. Jesus describes it this way in Luke 12, 2 and 3. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetop. Paul simply says it this way. He says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I mean, the things you are most uncomfortable anybody knowing about. The worst secrets of our lives will all be exposed and brought into the light for all to see, for God to see on that day. Every thought, word, every deed will be measured against the perfect righteousness of God's infinite holiness and whether it was done to bring glory to God. And anything not meeting that holy standard will be unacceptable and worthy of judgment. And there is no mention in this passage that anyone will be acquitted in this court based on the judgment of the goodness of their human deeds. Because no one will. Paul says it in Romans 3, 19 through 20. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There is no good works, no obedience to God's law, no trying to keep the Ten Commandments. None of that will ever enable anyone to be acquitted on the basis of this day when it comes. There will be no acquittals in this court on that day based on our good deeds or our works. And Paul tells us a couple verses after that past the one we just looked at in Romans 3.23, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, no one's deeds can meet the holy righteous standard God will use as a measure that day. And you know, the, the truth of this reality was made very real to me personally some 48 years ago. And while I don't claim that my subjective experience is on a level with biblical truth, so don't hear me saying that, and you're welcome to make what you will of kind of this story, but to me, what I'm going to describe couldn't have been more real. Because 48 years ago, in December of 1973, I had one of those rare experiences where I believe I had a very personal encounter with the one who will be seated on this throne. And I was 20 years old at the time. I was not a Christian. As a matter of fact, I was about as unlikely a candidate for an encounter with God that you could find. I had only one God at that time, and that was myself. I had no value or respect for any kind of moral law. I had no interest or time for God or religion. 
As a matter of fact, I would commonly say when people would speak to me about God or religion, that religion was just a crutch for people who didn't have the guts to make it in life on their own. And then on a particular night in December of 1973, I came to a situation where I was certain that I was going to die that night. And I can't go into all the details and the time we have, but there was no doubt in my mind that I would not be there when the next morning came. And to this day, I still believe that if God did not intervene in my life that night, I would not be standing before you here today. But on this particular night, I got a slight glimpse, just a taste, if you will, of some of what it might be like to stand before God's throne on that day described in this text. And some 13 years later, after I came to Christ and put my faith in him, I, was right, I wrote a testimony of much of what God did in my life during that time. And in the journal that I wrote, um, I described the events of this particular evening. So bear with me. I just want to read a little bit from that journal. Suddenly, <clears throat> it seemed like there was some other presence in my head with me. Again, I did not see or hear anything, nor did I experience any hallucinations, visual or audible relating to it. It was just there with me. And although many years have gone by since then, I can still remember the power it possessed. That was so great, I could literally feel it. I remember that its presence was not something that was spatial in its nature. And by that I mean it wasn't like it was over there or in any particular place. It was just there. And as soon as I became aware of this presence, it was like someone had turned a light on in the dark secret room of my soul and all the filthy garbage in there was suddenly in the light and not hidden anymore. I saw myself as I really was without the benefit of all the ego defense mechanisms like rationalization, etc., that we use to cover up and literally change our perception of what we are and things we do or have done. It was as if the light that was shining into me, revealing all of my inner self, had a standard of its own, apart from my own mental, rational standards of right and wrong. And I remember thinking what a filthy, disgusting little creature I was in my true self. I find it hard to find words that do a good job describing this, but maybe the best way to say it is that there was a purity of essence associated with this presence before which I could not stand. Because the contrast between itself and what its illumination exposed in me made me shrink back in shame. I found myself at that point an unwilling participant in what I have called since that day the trial. This presence I have described was the judge, and there was a prosecuting attorney who began to list off what seemed like great numbers of wrong things that I had done. And at each indictment, I could only cringe a little lower as I knew that these things were true and there was nothing to say anyway since the judge could look right inside me and see the truth for himself. 
And as much as I lived my life at that time around deceiving others to get what I wanted, in this situation, there was no deception. And after this prosecuting attorney had finished with his list, and I'm sure he didn't list everything I'd ever done wrong, only enough to ensure my conviction, I suppose, and finally sat down, I remember thinking that now someone would speak on my behalf. After all, I had not been a completely bad person. I had done some good things in my life, and even in our court system, they give you a legal aid attorney if you can't afford one. And the thing that shocked me the most, I think, was that when the call went out for someone to speak on my behalf, there was only silence. I still remember thinking that surely there must be some good that I had done, but nothing, only silence. And I need to point out at this time that as far as the consequences of this trial, I didn't know exactly what they were. What I did believe was that I was going to die that night. Don't ask me how I knew this, but to this day, I still believe that my life was in the balance that night. And I didn't know what exactly would happen to me, but I knew with the utmost conviction that if I died that night in the condition that I was in, in reference to this trial, that it would be the worst possible thing I could ever imagine. Well, in case you were wondering, I didn't die that night. (laughs) But in the hopelessness of that moment, this judge offered me the grace of another chance. And there were some conditions that I had to agree to in order to get that chance. But as soon as I did, that presence was gone. And within minutes, things began to happen to change that situation, and my life was spared. And so for the next 13 years, I would try to explain that experience with all kinds of psychological gobbledygook, none of which made a lot of sense even to me. And it wasn't until 13 years later, after I came to faith in Christ, that I think I understood what happened that night. And I believe that I had put myself in a situation where Satan had a legitimate legal claim to take my life that night. But I believe God intervened that night and saved it. But I felt like I had a glimpse, just just a taste, if you will, that night of what it might be like when our deeds are revealed in the fullness of God's pure, holy light on the day we stand before him. And why there will be no one who will be acquitted on that day based on the righteousness of their deeds. The psalmist, I think, says it this way in Psalm 130, verse 3. He says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there's another book referred to in this passage in Revelation 20, and it's called the Book of Life. Verse 12 says, Then another book was opened, which is the Book of Life. So what is this book of life. Well, it's spoken of throughout the scripture and in various places. One of the places would be in the very next chapter here in Revelation as John in his vision is describing the new heavens and earth where the people of God would dwell for all eternity. He says this in verse chapter 21 verse 27. 
says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Philippians 4, in verse 3, where he's appealing that these two ladies who are his co-workers who are in a conflict, he's appealing for someone to help them. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, this book of life, it's the record of all those whose sins have already been paid for. Those who belong to Jesus, it's the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. It's those for whom Jesus took the punishment and the wrath of God that they would be due in this day of judgment we see here in Revelation 20. And he took their wrath and judgment by dying on a cross in their place. It's those who have placed their faith and trust in this little child born in a manger in Bethlehem. Those who have made him their only hope to be rescued from the terrible consequences of having to stand before God and be judged on the basis of their deeds. And you know, really, the the primary difference between these two books is really the answer to the question, who's going to pay? Who will bear the holy, righteous judgment of God for all of our unrighteous deeds, words, and thoughts when this moment comes? Will it be me or Jesus? Because it's only by putting our hope and faith in Jesus Christ that our name is written in this book of life. And if you're listening today or sitting here today and you, the question that I would ask you is, is your name in that book? Have you placed your hope and faith and trust in Jesus to save you when this moment comes so that your name is written in the book of life? You see, when this day comes, you you don't want your name just written in one book. See, all of our names will be in the book of deeds when this day comes. The only question will be, will your name be in one book or two? So if you've never turned from your sins and turn from trusting in yourself and the righteousness of your deeds or whatever else you think might get you through a day, this day when it comes and get you into a place of being accepted by God, then God's invitation still stands today that if you will, if you will turn and put your hope and faith in Jesus and the genuineness of your heart as your hope, as the payment for your sins, And God's promise is he will write your name in this book of life and it will never be erased. 
And that brings us to the third thing we want to look at in this passage, and that's the eternal outcome. Let's look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And verse 15 really answers the question for us of who's going to pay. It says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the horror of this lake of fire, it defies description. It is also referred to as hell or the second death as it's called in verse 14. It's the second death because it's the death that comes after physical death. It's the death that is eternal death. And while it is beyond the ability of words to describe, there are several descriptive terms used in the scriptures to characterize it. It's referred to as the outer darkness which speaks of the separation from the presence of God and all the goodness and love that God is the source of. It's a place of fire. It's the lake of fire, which speaks to wrath and punishment and suffering. It's called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of regret, sadness, and torment. You know, gnashing of teeth is when you go, oh, you know, you... You just regret. You realize, how could I do this? And it's everlasting. Jonathan Edwards, in trying to capture the horrific nature of this, said this. He says, the sinner in hell would give the world and all beside if he could to make the number of his sins one less. I mean, it is without question the worst thing we could possibly imagine. And this passage in Revelation 20 is literally the pivotal point of all of human history. Everything in our lives ultimately leads to this moment which will define our eternity. And it is this very moment that this little child born in a stable in Bethlehem, came to rescue us from. Because without him, there can only be one outcome when that day comes. There can only be one answer to the question, who's going to pay? See, this is why he came. The angel said it in his proclamation to Mary announcing that he would be born in Matthew 121 says she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins you know sometimes I think Christmas can be a little like how we relate to seatbelts I mean, some people are convinced that they don't need seatbelts at all, right? Although the police might have a different point of view if they stop you and you're not wearing one. But the majority of us, we buckle and unbuckle day in and day out without really giving much thought to those seatbelts at all. But then the day comes 
when someone we love or maybe we ourselves are involved in a serious accident. And that seatbelt either saved us or our loved one from death or serious injury. And suddenly our appreciation for the value of that seatbelt, it goes way up. And we not only make sure that every time we get in the car, we're very aware of the need to buckle up, but anybody else that gets in that car, we're going to tell them they need to buckle up too. Because all of a sudden, we see with great clarity what that seatbelt was designed to rescue or save us from. And it can be that same way with this Christmas story rescue about the birth of Jesus. I mean, we love the story of the baby Jesus and all that Christmas means. We love the gifts, the decorations, the lights, the family traditions. And as the years go by, we can repeatedly do the same Christmas routines. But perhaps we become just a little too familiar with the story of Christmas. And like buckling and unbuckling our seatbelts, we can just start to take it for granted. Because we lose touch with the true significance of what it was intended to rescue or save us from. If I could have the band come and join me. So if you've lost the joy of what this Christmas season is all about, I mean, if hope just seems like a buzzword without much meaning as you go through the hustle and bustle of the holiday season, I mean, maybe you've lost touch a bit with what the hope of Christmas was meant to rescue you from. You know, in 1987, the nation rejoiced when baby Jessica was rescued from that well shaft in Midland, Texas. And if that rescue caused joy in people's hearts over that little girl being saved, I mean, how much joy should fill our hearts if we really grasp what we've been rescued from. I think Jesus tells us in Luke 10, 20, when he sends the disciples out and gives them power over casting out demons and healing the sick, and they come back and they're all jazzed about how the demons submitted to them and they were able to use this power. And he said to him in Luke 10, 20, He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that your names are in that book of life. And that should bring us great joy as we celebrate this Christmas season. Advent calls us to look forward to the return of Christ in hope, And the hope of Advent involves a number of amazing certain future promises that God will bring about for his people through Jesus. But you know, without the hope of rescue from that day described in Revelation 20, none of those other promises would be possible for us. And so I pray this Christmas season who bring you fresh joy, fresh gratefulness, fresh thankfulness, as you reflect on the hope of what Jesus came to rescue you from.
So let's close by standing and singing about this hope as we confidently declare it through this song.